If you just understand a couple really basic concepts like protein and energy density and the drivers of satiety, and you make it just a couple tiny food swaps in your day, you get this huge return on your investment. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Dr. Ted Naiman. Ted is a board-certified family medicine physician in the Department of Primary Care at a leading major medical center in Seattle. His personal research and medical practice are focused on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. Ted is the author of The PE Diet, a book dedicated to helping people leverage their biology to create optimal health. Ted and I talk about what he believes are the biggest levers that you can pull on for fitness and nutrition, what nutrition and fitness should look like for the average person, and how we can optimize our lifestyles in a way that can help us achieve our goals without completely rerouting our entire lives. Ted is a wealth of knowledge in this space, and it's something that he has obviously put a lot of time and thought into. If you're looking to make changes to your fitness and health, this is going to be an impactful podcast for you. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Ted Naiman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been following your stuff quite a while. And, um, you know, you've had a career where you've bounced around quite a bit. And you started out as a, a primary care physician in Seattle for about 20 years, correct? Oh, uh, yeah. Still here. Still primary care. Yep. Hasn't changed. Oh, I love it. So you're still you're still rolling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what what was it for you that made you want to become a doctor in the first place? Uh, nothing. So I got a mechanical engineering degree uh, and then couldn't get a job. They laid off too many Boeing engineers up here. And so nobody in my class could get a job. And I literally just went back to school on a whim and picked med school at random. Like I, I took the MCAT cold and applied the last day you could apply and just somehow got in because they liked the fact that I was an engineer. And then here I am 20 years later. I literally never wanted to be a doctor at all. That was not the plan. <laughs> it's like the least virtuous story ever, but nonetheless, yeah. I mean, you're making a huge impact in the world. So it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, well, how have your views of health and fitness changed or morphed since your origin in getting uh, through med school? Well, you know, mostly I felt like, <clears throat> I felt like diet didn't, was wordless. It felt like diet was like not important and pointless um, because I went to med school at Loma Linda University in Southern California, which is this, like this big plant-based mecca, right? I was raised Adventist and vegetarian. And on paper, I had the best diet anyone could ever have. You know, it was low in saturated fat and 
plant-based and all these things, but my health was never really that good. And nobody around me was really in, in any better health than the average person. So um, <clears throat> I kind of left my medical training with the feel that diet was pointless and kind of dumb. And, and, and I was also sort of taught that if anybody had anything wrong with them, it was mostly genetics, right? They're like, well, it's all genetic. You know, if both your parents are obese, there's an 80% chance you're going to be obese. And if both your parents have type 2 diabetes, there's an 80% chance you'll have type 2 diabetes. And that's just totally genetic. And, that, you know, that's how it is. So, like, it's just kind of pointless. You just feel sorry for these people and then give them the drugs. And here's the drugs we use, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so I actually kind of left my training feeling like diet and exercise were pointless. You know, I'm on the best diet ever and I'm no healthier than anyone else. So that's dumb. And then like everything wrong with people is really just genetics and you just kind of feel sorry for them and give them medication. And so I, I really like entered my actual medical career uh, with the feel that like diet and exercise was like just like a massive afterthought. I mean, you got like five minutes of nutrition education in med school, right? And you get like exactly negative zero minutes on exercise it's even worse so like i absolutely thought i literally thought it was just pointless and that's so sad looking back on it because you know i i just i went from thinking diet and exercise was a super afterthought dumb and pointless to oh my god that's everything like it's the only thing like everything else just like fades into the background and so yeah. Now, I, was it was it more through education or your experiences with some of your patients that kind of shook up your worldview in this regard? It was my patient experiences. I, I realized I will go from seeing the just the healthiest, most ripped and jacked, you know, fire breathing, chiseled from granite CrossFitter to like some just horribly decrepit person who's literally just all their organs are falling apart and they're in a wheelchair and they're just, um, you know, and the difference between these people, I'm like, what drives this? You know, how do you get from being like the healthiest person on earth to like the least healthy person on earth? And, and it, and it occurred to me, you know, just after all these interactions that really the only thing that came down to the difference between these people is diet and exercise. I mean, sure. There were some genetic predispositions for certain things, but that was just, you know, there. And then it was the environment that brought those phenotypes out, right? That it was your environment. What you did with diet and exercise that determined whether you got these things you were genetically prone to or not. So I, I just really made a 180 on diet and exercise. And once I realized, hey, it's really all about diet and exercise and genetics just loads the gun and environment pulls a trigger. That's when I really started researching for myself, you know, what the heck is going on here? How does this work? And uh, just for the past 20 years, ever since I've been super geeked out on the diet and exercise side, trying to figure out exactly what separates the healthiest people I see from these super sick people I see. Now, if there's ever a barometer on how passionate you are about a subject, it's whether or not you write a book because a book is a major undertaking and um, you wrote the PE diet. So what made you want to write that book in the first place? And how was that process? I, so the only reason I wrote the book is because I'm lazy as hell and I get like 15 minutes with each patient, <clears throat> right? So it's like, okay, you're a primary care doctor and they're just like, 
And I just punch a clock for a massive hospital here in Seattle. So I just show up, see patients leave. And I get, you know, you get like 15 minutes to talk to people. And you have so much information about diet and exercise and health and and all this lifestyle stuff that you have absolutely no time to to convey any of that ever. And so I just, I mostly wrote the book as a, just a way to just be super lazy and just say, here, check it out. And so I, you know, I give the book for free to all my patients. I've given out like, you know, 5,000 copies or something like that now. And I just, anyone who's interested, I, uh, who comes to see me, I'm like, please read this, check it out. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, it's mostly just been a labor-saving device on my part to make my day job easier, the, the doctor job easier. It's pretty sad, but that's how it happened. Yeah, I can see how that can be a, a major help. Last week, ironically, I had another physician on, um, a, a primary care physician, who is running a practice uh, very close to my fitness facility that is based in, I don't want to say it's concierge medicine, but it is basically point-of-service membership based. Where do you think we are with our healthcare system in terms of being able to find more time and effort to be able to put into the individual rather than just kind of pumping through them, the patients, as you had alluded to, do you think we're going to be able to get to a place where the doctor is going to be able to have a more um, uh, intimate interaction with their patients? Well, I mean, like, honestly, all of your smart doctors are doing concierge, right? Like, I'm just, uh, I'm just dumb enough to still be in the, on the treadmill, right? Your smart Give yourself doctor, some credit, Ted. No, it's true. Like, I, I basically, I'm horrible at business. So I'm just like, I show up, punch a clock, see patients leave. The smart doctors are doing the concierge thing. And they're realizing, oh, hey, if I, you know get paid a little bit more, I have more time to really talk to people about what really matters. I can do way more um, preventative stuff. I can do way more lifestyle stuff. I can do way more like optimization instead of just trying to keep everybody alive. And uh, I think that's great. I also think that the people who can afford that and and invest in that probably need it the least because they're already smarter than everyone else and they've already figured a lot of stuff out. They're already ahead of the curve, you know what I mean? And so I I don't want to say like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, but basically the people who can afford that needed the least because they've already um, probably better off than someone who can't. So like, so that's another reason I read the book. I'm like, oh, wow, I got to democratize this crap because, (laughs) you know, the person who needs it the most has like the least resources, the least information, and they, they're all they got is like TikTok for their healthcare crap. You know what I'm saying? They like they have no, which idea. is a form of fast food in in and of itself, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I mean, I think that, I, I, I mean, I like where the concierge thing's going for people who can afford it, but you know, it's just not going to happen for most people. And that's uh, the the book is more just democratization for somebody who has no time, no money, no resources. You know, you read the book and you don't, you don't need any, any resources at all. You know, I've, I've had like, you know, homeless patients lose, you know, weight because they read this book and like just implemented some of these principles. You know what I'm saying? You don't need a ton of extra 
money or resources. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, <clears throat> I, I do think that healthcare is probably not going to get any more. It's not going to get any better on the lifestyle part anytime soon, unfortunately. That's what we need. Yeah. Like you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I tell our coaches all the time that we are fighting in the, tr the trenches of preventative medicine all the time. Um, yeah. and, and I, they, they cannot undervalue the importance of their role in that. Um, so yeah, that is a message that I, I definitely embody. Um, so the book, the intent of the book was to be able to use your biology to optimize your health. Um, can you speak to, uh, you know, how you go about teaching people to do that? Well, yeah, I mean, basically they're, all, <clears throat> you know, what you do kind of dr drives, um, how your body responds and the phenotype you get, you know, it, it's like, it's like your muscles, right? If you, um, if you don't use it, you lose it. So we have people, you know, lay in the ICU for two weeks and they have to freaking learn how to walk again, right? They have to, they can't walk up a flight of stairs. And it, you basically, uh, by training, you create this demand. I mean, you tell your body, you have to have more muscle. You have to have more mitochondria. You have to have a higher VO2 max. And um, then you drive these sort of changes in your body, right? And, and the book is all about, you know, how the inputs you put in get you different outputs. It's like, oh, wow, if you choose a food, that has higher satiety per calorie, more protein, more fiber, lower energy density, you're going to automatically eat less. You're going to automatically be thinner. If you prioritize protein over non-protein energy, you're going to uh, prioritize the lean mass in your body over the fat mass on your body. And it's all about how these little inputs into your diet and your exercise um, create these outputs in your phenotype, in your body composition, in your metabolic health. And um, it kind of tries to... to, to nail down exactly what you need to do to put in 20% of the effort and get 80% of the results. This course, you know, this whole sort of Pareto principle where um, if you know exactly what the biggest levers are and you pull those a little bit, you get, you know, huge results and a huge return on investment, even if you didn't really spend that much time on it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, you're an expert in this area. So what are those levers that are the most important yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think that if people realized what a big driver protein leverage was, it would be game changing for a lot of people. You know, so for example, um, there's this massive protein satiety leverage thing going on that humans just, most people are blissfully unaware of it, right? Basically, humans eat until they get enough protein, you're going to keep eating until you get enough protein and nobody realizes this. And so over the obesity epidemic, you know, a protein percent has fallen, you know, from maybe 15% all the way down to 12 and percent in America. And that doesn't sound like anything. That's why we've ignored protein the whole time. We're like, well, protein always kind of stays the same. Turns out that when you dilute protein with carbs and fats, you end up having to massively overeat non-protein energy in order to get enough protein to not be hungry. You know what I'm saying? So it's like if you're eating, you know, French fries, which are potatoes and oil, and they're 6% protein, um, you're going to have to eat an extra 1,000 calories of French fries just to get enough protein to not be hungry. And I think your average person 
uh, has no clue that this is going on. They, they're not aware of this protein leverage phenomenon. And if you just front load a bunch of protein, you're going to be way hungrier downstream and you're going to hit this satiety way faster. The same thing happens with energy density. Basically, humans eat until they get a certain weight and volume of food. You're going to eat, you know, three pounds of food a day. Now, if you're eating, you know, three pounds of steak and potatoes, your your calories are probably okay. If you're eating three pounds of, you know, Hot Pockets and Pop-Tarts or anything with uh, refined carbs and refined fats in it, you're going to eat twice as many calories just passively. You're not even, you're not even trying to, you're not even aware of it. And so we have this massive amount of dilution of protein and fiber and water and weight and volume of our food with refined carbs and refined fats. And so uh, everyone's just passively eating way more calories than they need to or want to or should just to not be hungry. You know, everyone needs to satiety and they're unaware that all this stuff is happening in the background. And, and, and that's the, if you just understand a couple really basic concepts like protein and energy density and the drivers of satiety, and you make it just a couple tiny food swaps in your day, you get this huge return on your investment. You know what I mean? It's like if you eat eggs and bacon every day of your life, and then you switch to two eggs and two egg whites and some turkey bacon, you're just going to cruise right down to your ideal body weight and stay there. And it's these little substitutions where you're just intentionally getting a slightly higher protein percent and slightly lower energy density. And you just do that with a couple things, you know, in your day and you shaved off two or 300 calories. And then it's just this effortless weight loss. And, and that's the, the whole point of the book is realizing that there's this protein to energy ratio you didn't know about making some tiny little tweaks where you're just progressively making it a little higher than it was before and then just automatically eating less and automatically getting better body composition. The, the, the same thing on the exercise side, you just, you know, put in this really intensive effort all the way to failure in certain, you know, push, pull, leg, muscle directions. And you might spend 90 seconds doing one set of pulling exercise a day, but you keep doing that forever and you're going to get, you know, huge return on your investment, just massive return on your investment. When I have these people who never put maximum tension in any of their muscles, and then they just do like one set of push-ups and pull-ups daily, uh, the, the, the strength and hypertrophy benefits they get um, from this tiny amount of time is like incalculably huge. And so the book is all about these tiny little things you can do. That's hardly any effort, hardly any time. And then your return on investment in terms of body comp and health and whatever is just enormous, you know? And so the, the goal is just to be practical and focused and make tiny little strategic changes in a really specific direction. Yeah. And I mean, that's what leverage is. It's disproportionate input to output, you know? So you're talking about things that, you know, I think whenever people think of fitness and, and dieting and they, especially as they attribute it to the way that somebody looks or the way that that person behaves or the way that they see them, right. Their reality of an individual. I think people assume that people are just so incredibly obsessed with everything in their life, health and fitness and nutrition wise. And that is the reason that they look the way they look and are able to do the things that they can do. And look there, I understand that that's part of it, but I think that, that one of the bigger points, which is really important here that you, you tackled is that it is just these small incremental changes over time. And, and to the protein uh, point you made that 
that's a tool that we actually give people, um, not just for their daily living, but also when they have these excursions or vacations where, you know, for example, like we travel, uh, my wife and I to my, um, to her family's house a lot often for holidays. And like for myself, the rule I always said is like protein comes first. So it's like, you can eat whatever else you want. Cause I know there's, you know, she's, she's a, an, comes from an Italian family. There's going to be every food imaginable there that's hyper palatable. And then I'm going to want to go after on every hour of the day. But if I focus on protein first, this now makes it much easier for me to hit that satiety effect sooner. And for me to kind of make sure I'm checking that box rather than just assuming that it's going to get checked naturally, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's brilliant. The, the, the protein preload is, is such a great concept and it's so central to, you know, the book. And, and it's one of these things where once somebody knows that it changes their entire life, you know what I mean? If you go to the buffet and you preload with, uh, you know, a chicken breast and a salad or something, uh, you pretty much can't eat whatever you want, but you've automatically ratioed this protein and fiber part higher and everything else is just like a dessert and you're just going to automatically eat way less. And this is life-changing advice. And to the uninitiated, it, it's such a big deal and it's so powerful, especially because it's this little thing that if you do consistently forever, um, you know, you just get this massive benefit from it. So yeah, I love that. I love the, the, these little tiny practical things that people can do that have a massive, massive effect on their health. Now we talked about positive leverage in terms of finding these key principles that you can utilize and make incremental change and see big results. But let's talk a little bit, a little bit about negative leverage and in your book and in some of your content, you talk about this kind of trifecta of hyper palatable foods that hits the taste buds in the right spot, but unfortunately hits us in the wrong spot. What are those foods? What are those combinations? And what's going on for us mechanistically and on, on like a chemical and hormonal level that's causing us to want more of those foods? Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, so in the book I talk about, uh, it's called the trifecta. And this is a combination of a food that's high, high carb, high fat, and high energy density all at one time. These are things that don't exist in nature. You basically find no foods in nature that are simultaneously high in carbs, high in fat, and higher in energy density. The only thing that even comes close is uh, mammalian milk. Milk is uh, from mammals is basically lactose, milk fat. Uh, it's very high carb, high fat, high energy density. It's designed to turn tiny little mammals into really big mammals as fast as possible. There are a few other uh, in the plant world, the kind of similar food is nuts. So nuts are like food for baby plants, and it's very high carb, high fat, high energy density together. And uh, humans are wired; we're, we're we're so wired to get the most calories for the least energy, right? So, like, imagine that you um, are your hunter gatherer, right? And you all day long, you're trying to catch a gazelle or something and you expend, you know, 2000 calories hunting and gathering. And then you only get like 2001 calories back from the food. You know, if you, if you only get 1999 calories every day for a couple of months, you're just going to starve to death and die. So you're, we're constantly wired to get the most calories from our food for the least calorie expenditure. Cause then you're going to stay alive, right? You're in 
you've got enough energy to store fat and live through the winter and survive the famine and all this kind of stuff. So our brains really light up. We get this huge dopamine spike from foods that are high energy density, from foods that are high carb, high fat. You get the three of them together and it's just incredibly addictive. So you eat your ice cream and your donuts and your pizza and your candy bars and all of these trifecta foods that are high carb, high fat, high energy density, just light up your brain, you know, like a slot machine, this massive dopamine release. And it's just like you hit the jackpot, right? You, um, you know, you got so many calories for such a little effort that this is the food. And that's why all these foods are extremely addictive. So, so basically there are two things driving obesity forward, right? There's the fact that protein got diluted with refined carbs and refined fats, right? So you you see just a steak, but now you get like a chicken nugget with a little tiny piece of protein and a bunch of breading and a bunch of fries and a large soda and it's supersized. And so we, we've dumped all these refined carbs and refined fats in there, diluted the hell out of protein. And now for the same weight and volume of food, you're getting a tiny bit of protein and then this massive number of carbs and fats. And that's passive overconsumption. And so that drives obesity forward. You know, we've diluted out all these satiety factors with carbs and fats, so you get a bunch of extra calories. But then on the kind of pulling obesity forward side is this addictive nature of these high-carb, high-fat, high-energy-density foods because they're so tasty and so rewarding and so delicious. And, you know, most people just order food from Uber Eats just like they were, you know, they put no thought into it. They're like, that sounds like it tastes good. Sure, I'll take the deep-fried mac and cheese, right? That sounds like a great entree. And so you're eating foods that are simultaneously making you overeat passively from dilution of protein with carbs and fats, but then also like addictively driving things forward with this super tasty, super hedonic stuff that I think, you know, a full half of the obesity epidemic is mostly just this almost addictive like quality of these foods. And, And you don't have to avoid them completely. You just have to be hyper aware of exactly how it's hijacking your biology and exactly what it's doing to your brain. And you have to respect the hell out of these foods and definitely eat it, you know, maybe last and as a dessert. So like you're over at the in-laws and you're, you're going to preload with a pound of turkey breast and a salad. And then you're just going to have a little bit of the deep fried mac and cheese later as like a dessert type thing. And that will automatically improve your odds um, versus someone who just goes to Starbucks and orders a, you know, Trente Frappuccino because <laughs> it tastes good. And then they're just really in trouble. But yeah, absolutely. These addictive foods uh, are half the problem. And it's really important to understand how these foods are, you know, pulling obesity forward from the addictive nature and then pushing obesity forward because they're diluting out protein. Yeah, the first time I was exposed to this knowledge was actually through a book called The Hungry Brain. And it talked about how there's still tribes that exist today. And when they follow them, basically what's happening is they don't, there's no guarantee of food, right? And it's like one of the few examples where this is still a reality, um, especially outside of, you know, first world countries, which is you have these tribes that are on the hunt to both, you know, hunt down animals and, and gather food, and they can go extended periods of time without being able to find, uh, food, let alone a, uh, excessive, you know, 
um, quantity of it. So if they come across something like honey, which is incredibly calorically dense, they they consume it all at once because they're not sure when they're going to be able to find food like that again. And and I think this speaks to how our brains are wired. We are more a in a mode of prevention from starvation than we are protection against obesity. Um, and and this is why we're at this this um, com- total disadvantage inside of our houses when we have cabinets filled with these hyper palatable foods in a combination of that trifecta that you spoke about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love The Hungry Brain by Stephen Guiana. This is a spectacular book, highly recommended. And you're absolutely right. You know, we've just, our whole evolution, the big problem was starving to death. And so anytime you got into these high energy density foods, you were just going to overeat the hell out of them because you didn't know when you were getting them again. Well, there, there, so there's the, the dual set point model of obesity, right? There's a lower bound where you starve to death. Your leptin's really low. Every animal on earth is going to just massively overeat when they're that thin and that hungry. Uh, the upper bound to obesity is predation, basically. And so the reason we have no upper bound to obesity in modern society is because we solved the predation problem. You know, we've got like guns and crap. So basically nobody's getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And that's literally what's going on. Uh, We eliminated the upper bound to obesity, which is if you got fat enough, you can't run away from, you know, a predator. And that's gone. And so there's just no end in sight until we have like, you know, the, you know, the last of us, uh, zombie apocalypse type phenomenon, uh, it's going to continue to be a problem because we just don't have that upper bound. Now, there's always part of me that finds it somewhat funny and then equally frustrating that, you know, someone like yourself can come on a podcast like this and lay out really simple principles for nutrition. And yet people are drowning in just misinformation and disinformation. And to be quite honest, I think that we even see a bit of a disconnect or at the very least kind of a lagging effect of some governmental funnel uh, funded um, you know, agencies like such as like the ADA, where maybe their protein recommendations are not up to par with what a lot of physicians would even recommend. What, what do you think it causes in, in the nutrition sciences such an array of just different information that confuses people. Well, like I honestly think the biggest, the biggest problem, the the way they missed the boat in the biggest way is protein. Like we've only known about this protein leverage phenomenon for maybe 10 years. And so if you, if you go back and you look at the food pyramid, you know, a lot of stuff in the food pyramid was, was good. It made sense. It's like, Oh, okay. Don't eat a bunch of refined sugar. Don't eat a bunch of refined fats. Don't eat a bunch of oil. Don't eat a bunch of, soda and candy, you know, eat more whole foods, eat more, you know, unprocessed food, eat more. This is all in there. But what you're, where you're really screwing yourself over is the protein percentage, right? So you've got a hunter-gatherer, the average hunter-gatherer macronutrient intake on earth is around 33% of calories from protein, right? That is pretty pretty high. That's pretty freaking high. 33%. We have all these studies that show that if you can get a, if you can get pre-diabetics up to 30% of their calories from protein, you reverse 100% of pre-diabetes. It's just gone. You basically can't overeat when you're getting that much protein satiety. So, you know, the average protein in 
the world is 14 down at 14 to 15 percent. Uh, now we're down at about 12 and a half percent in America. In lab animals, if you get protein down to about 10 percent, you get the absolute peak fattening right in uh, obesogenic rodent chow and that sort of thing. So we're, we're, we're our protein percent falling to this peak obesity level. And then if you look at like the food pyramid, right, the base of the food pyramid is grains, right? And grains are fairly low protein. You know, your very best grain is maybe oatmeal at, you know, 15% or quinoa, at maybe 16%. But like rice, 11% protein, um, you know, wheat's like maybe 12 or 13% protein. And, and wheat is probably one, of, it's, it's actually one of the biggest sources of protein in the American diet. And do you know how many calories you have to overeat if you're, if wheat's your biggest source of protein? So I, I think where the food pyramid really screwed up was just ignoring protein, not thinking about protein. They ended up saying, well, everyone should be, you know, on a low fat diet. Don't eat more than 30% of your calories from fat, which is fine. But then you're demonizing these protein-containing foods, or if you're like, okay, minimize saturated fat, it shouldn't be more than 10% of your calories. I totally agree with that. That's not a problem. But then you're telling people, okay, so don't eat these foods. They're in this little part of the pyramid that you're trying to minimize because you're minimizing saturated fat. But hey, what about protein? Where do we ever prioritize that? Where's that You know, close to the base of the pyramid? Oh, it's not because we didn't even think about it because we didn't even know. And it's this protein dilution and ignoring protein that really screwed up nutritional advice in at a government level, in my opinion. <clears throat> I think that's what what happened. I mean, all the other stuff they're talking about is fine. Sure, yeah, eliminate or, or minimize refined oils, minimize refined sugar, and all this stuff. That's great. You know, eat more fruits and vegetables. Love it. Eat more whole foods. Totally fine. <clears throat> you know, minimize saturated fat. Okay, but where's the um, eat an adequate protein percentage. It's not in there. And that's where we, that's how, that's how we got screwed up. Honestly, I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a coach, I'm somebody that really tries to be the opposite of an absolutist when it comes to nutrition. But I have to admit that I do struggle sometimes when working with people that choose certain diets that, that make this problem even more of a difficult one by the way of choosing to be vegan or vegetarian. And it's not that it's impossible to meet those markers um, with as far as protein goes. It just becomes a far more concerted effort. And for somebody that is a, you know, in the, the coaching sphere, um, I would find it hard for myself to be able to accomplish that. So what do you do with people that are adamant about maintaining um, you know, a lifestyle of, of a vegan or a vegetarian and being able to hit those marks uh, with protein? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot harder. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, you can absolutely do it. You can totally be vegan and never eat any animal foods and be completely optimized. You, that is absolutely possible. It, you just have to be a lot smarter. You have to work a lot harder on the protein side. And you're going to have to eat processed foods to get enough protein. Like, so if I just decided today, you know, I'm eating 200 grams of protein a day. If I just decided to immediately get that from legumes, let's say I'm just going to get all my protein from black beans or kidney beans or lentils. I'm going to eat about 800 extra calories from carbohydrate a day. And I'm going to have to double my cardio just to not slowly gain fat, body fat. 
it's going to be a legitimate problem. Um, so you really have to, uh, like all my vegans and vegetarians, I'm just educating them about the protein side. And it's like, all you have to do is count grams of protein and you have to eat, you know, this much protein and you have to pay attention to how much protein's in your food. And honestly, I am recommending they eat a lot of things like tofu and uh, tempa and um, protein powders. And, uh, you know, we've got <clears throat> it. I, I used to be afraid of soy because I was some sort of religious paleoite, you know, and now I've read enough research that I'm actually not afraid of soy. I, it's probably your best option in the plant world. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's not optimal, but it's possible. But you're right, it really creates a challenge. Now, I'm all about not being dogmatic with um, diet and not being religious. And I, I went through so many religious phases where I was, you know, an Adventist and a vegetarian and I was religiously low carb and religiously paleo and then keto and carnivore. And I, I've fallen through all the diet religions. And now I'm like, okay, you do not have to be religious at all. You do not have to have these rigid rules. You can make anything work. That's, you know, why humans can live anywhere on the planet and survive because we can make anything work. You just have to know what the levers are, go out of your way to get the protein, get the micronutrients. And, you know, at the same time, because I'm, trying to be non-religious, I, I, I struggle when patients have this very narrow worldview, like, okay, I have to do this as a religious carnivore, or I have to do this as a religious vegan. And I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. But you can do it. You can, the point is you can do it. It's just not, it's, po it's merely possible. It's not optimal. And you really want to see the big picture. I think it's so important that someone like yourself stresses that point of not being dogmatic about your nutrition. Um, and I'm sure you would agree with, with the fitness piece as well. And I think the reason for that is because it is not as, it's not nearly as marketable to choose this kind of very open-ended approach to nutrition, although it's one that will likely find the most long-term success. So the information that's being put out there on social media, the algorithm is choosing the people that are much more dogmatic and speak in absolute and certain terms about their way or view of nutrition, while the people that are trying to come at this from an angle of like, no, there's actually a lot of ways that you can find success. Unfortunately, it's just not catching as many eyes and ears. Yeah, people like the polarized, people like the drama, people like the extremes. And the reality is nothing's ever binary. Nothing's ever black or white. Nothing's ever extreme. It's always somewhere straight down the middle. And so I, I've gotten to the point where I pretty much hate anything that's polarized, black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. I hate politics. I hate religion. I hate diet dogma and the diet camps. But you're right. You know, people get the most like eyeballs when they're way off on one edge of something or the other and uh, the reality is on all these issues you want to be straight down the middle it's uh yeah it, if your goal is to actually help as many people as you can absolutely yeah or or be optimal you really want to be right down the middle on almost all of these topics anytime you have a topic where there are people like oh that's the best thing ever or that's the worst thing ever you're pretty much assured that the answer is somewhere right in between. <laughs> now you mentioned earlier, yeah. Now, now you mentioned earlier that um, 
you know, your ability to serve people, you want to be free from socioeconomic status. But I think one thing that we have to address here, and, and, and socioeconomic status is only part of this equation, but I want to talk about environment with you because one of the things that I find to be one of the most uh, difficult to work through is when you are trying to make these profound changes in someone's life that are actually rather simplistic in nature, but become overly complex just by the fact that they're in an environment where they're swimming around bad decisions all day and, or at least the opportunity for bad decisions all day. So what do you do for people that maybe it's, it's, it's a, a woman that has, you know, a husband that just like doesn't care about their health and has snack food all around the the house, or maybe it's parents that have kids that are, are you know, have these things around the house or whatever the, the case in point or scenario is, how do you work with somebody that's in a disadvantage because of their environment? Yeah, it's really, really hard. <clears throat> And the reality is for any of this stuff to work, it has to be easy. It has to be accessible. You have to have external setup. It has to be right there. You know what I mean? So this person has to have like the foods they can eat just immediately available. You have to have your stockpile of whey powder. You have to have your stockpile of Greek yogurt. You have to um, meal prep a bunch of chicken breasts on Sundays. You have to have it right there. And if you have your ability to exercise right there and it's super convenient and you have, you know, every week you go out and buy your foods and you can preload with the protein and the fiber and the veggies and eat this stuff, um, that's your, that's your only hope to be successful. So it's all about external setup. Make sure you have the foods you need right there, easy and available and ready to go. And if you have that, you can eat that and do that. And then even if like, there's just a minefield of donuts around you everywhere else, as long as you've had this stuff, you need to be successful. You can kind of like walk past all the muffins and the chips and the, and the crap. And so um, the problem is if you don't have that stuff that you do need to eat right there, you're in big trouble. You know, like, so if I just tell somebody, okay, um, don't eat donuts. They're bad. And they go home and their whole family just loves donuts. And there's just donuts everywhere, you know. They're going to they're gonna eat a whole box of Krispy Kremes five minutes later. But if you're like, okay, you have to go out and buy all this food. And every morning you have to, you know, have a four-egg omelet with smoked salmon and then a whey shake. And then I'm going to say, don't eat donuts. Now, that person is going to be successful, right? They buy all these groceries. They do their meal prep. They have their omelet and smoked salmon and whey shake and they're going to just walk right past the donuts and everyone else is going to eat the the chips and the donuts and they'll just be snacking all day long on chips and donuts because they didn't eat this protein they didn't front load with the food that they actually need the micronutrients and the weight and volume and everything you need for satiety but as long as you you know have this food and it's right there and it's available you can actually survive an environment with a bunch of crap around like you know i go to work and in the break room there it's like <clears throat> everyone's got a candy bowl in their office that's always full and you know it's just like bagels and donuts and muffins and just like just tons of junk food and if i just told myself okay don't try not to eat this junk i would <laughs> i would go to work and i'd just be starving and i'd eat all this stuff but if i'm like okay you have to hit 200 grams of protein. You have to drink a whey shake. Here's your, um, you know, giant breakfast of like eggs and turkey bacon and a 
eating all this stuff, then it's, uh, it's so much easier. You know, you're just not that hungry. You walk right past it. It's no big deal. You could, I could have like just donuts, a tree, a donut tree, like right outside and it wouldn't be a problem. So it's all about, you know, making it easy to get what you do need. And then it's easier to avoid the stuff you don't want. I do. I, I love that um, perspective because it, what it does is it puts the ball back into the person's court that's looking to make the adjustment to their diet rather than, you know, um, just succumbing to their external factors. And in this way, you know, you can accept the fact that your environment isn't perfect and it can be far from close to it, but that you can still have influence over uh, the things that you're exposed to and the decisions that you make prior to have to deal with, uh, you know, being in a, in a suboptimal environment. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, you know, you could you could lock me in a McDonald's for a month, but that's okay. I'm going to eat the salad with with grilled chicken and skip the dressing and diet soda, and I'll come out just ripped and jacked. As long as I know, I, as long as I have the good stuff I need right there, and I know exactly what to eat, and I'm you know just very precise about it. It's not going to be a problem now. If I, didn't I think you have just that came problem, up with a with a great idea for a documentary there, Ted. Yeah, let's do it. Make it <laughs> Locked in McDonald's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, what? So you're obviously somebody that takes your health and fitness very seriously. What does your current training look like now? So my everything I do in terms of exercise is centered around minimum effective dose. Right? What is the Again, this Pareto principle where, you know, 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the results. My whole exercise career has been focused on minimalism. Like, what is the very least amount of time you can get by with? What is the very least amount of money and equipment? And, you know, nothing against a gym owner like yourself. Like, gyms are awesome. So great. Everyone should have a gym and go to a gym. And uh, the people who have a gym as great as yours are lucky. But, but my, my goal is like, okay, how could somebody do this if they had no time, no money, no anything? I've got patients working two minimum wage jobs. They got kids. They're like, they have nothing. They can't go to, the, they don't have the luxury of, you know, doing any of this stuff. So I'm like, what is a very bare minimum? So my routine is so tiny. The volumes are so tiny. I think most people would just cry. Like I usually don't do resistance training more than 15 minutes a day. And I'm just doing, you know, one to three sets of absolutely maximum intensity of like push, pull and legs, all body weight. Like everything I do is mostly equipment free. Like I, you're going to, this is terrible and you're going to hate this as a strength and conditioning, um, crossfitting gym owner. Like I don't have a barbell. I've never touched a barbell. I've, I've done zero back squats in my entire life. Never even done one. I've never done a bench press period ever at all. Zero. Um, like I don't, I'm not deadlifting. I'm not doing any of these traditional barbells. I'm just doing like body weight exercises, right? I will just do a uh, I'll do a push um, routine by just doing the maximum effort of the hardest set of push pushing um, push up variations I can do. So you know, I started out just struggling to do regular push ups, but now I'm doing 
you know, one arm push-ups and planche push-ups and all these advanced um, techniques where I can <clears throat> basically just make it harder and harder and harder. And, uh, you know, pulling exercises, I went from not being able to do a pull-up. Now I can do, you know, 20 pull-ups. I can do one arm chins. I'm doing more advanced, um, basically more advanced bodyweight moves, but I'm still just spending just a couple minutes doing a pushing move per day, a couple minutes doing a pulling move, and then a couple minutes doing a leg move like pistol squats. And <clears throat> I'm, even separating those up during the day. So I like, I might just do a, like the second we get out of this podcast, I might do the hardest set of the hardest push up variation I can do. And that's my push exercise for the day. And it's 90 seconds. And I did it right here in this office. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and then later, if I have something to pull on, I might do the hardest set I can of a pulling exercise. <clears throat> and then I'll, I might do my cardio somewhere in there. Like I'll walk the dog and I'll just run, run up every hill we encounter um, or sprint until I can't, I sprint to failure type thing. I just run as fast as I can for as long as I can and then stop and recover. And I'll just put these in my day interstitially. So I'm doing like nano workouts here and there that are all divided up. And it's there. They take no time, no equipment, no nothing. And I'm literally just sprinkling these in. But as long as I get the intensity <clears throat> absolutely maxed out. I don't have to expend hardly any time and hardly any volume. <clears throat> you know what I mean? So it's the, the, my whole exercise has been like, you know, one to three sets uh, uh, per day uh, of each muscle group with absolute maximum intensity. And then the real secret is just getting the intensity as high as I can stand and then just being consistent, you know, doing it like every day or every other day or at least twice a week. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm just doing these tiny bursts, these little nano workouts of absolute maximum tension in all my muscles, um, for as long as I can. And then absolute maximum cardiovascular stress, uh, again, for as long as I can. And as long as the intensity is high, you can get away with tiny volumes. And that's, that's one of the take homes in my book is like, you can always, there's a intensity and duration trade-off seesaw, right? And the higher you get the intensity, the less volume you need and vice versa. And then you have people who are just, they have the pink weights and they're just walking and they can do that for hours and they never really get anywhere because intensity is this missing variable. So I'm all about that higher intensity stuff, but that's what my workouts look like. They're super minimalistic. Um, most people would just either laugh at it or be sad or something. Well, listen, I mean, I, I haven't been at this as long as you have, but I've been at it long enough to have gone through a similar series of experiencing this kind of dogmatic approach to to my own fitness and the way that I view it um, in that I have finally feel like in over the last five years or so kind of come out of the woods and, and you know, realize that there are a lot of different ways that people find success in their their, their fitness and health. And, you know, I, I speak to our members all of the time about this minimum effective dose. Um, because I think one of the things that you hit on there is that too many times people either want to jump steps or jump ship because they are finding, they're seeking the novelty of a new movement. Whereas what you just highlighted is that you're able to maintain this kind of effect of progressive overload, right? Of, of providing this additional stimulus, um, or more intense stimulus to the body by the way of just changing the body weight exercises you do to make them increasingly more difficult. And I think that's a really important point for people to hear, which is that you don't need all the fancy equipment 
to be able to continually progressively overload. Like mentioning a planche push-up, you know, that's something that less than 1% of the 1% in our country can even do. So the thought of needing to go to dumbbell bench or bench, it's like those things are great and they can be awesome tools. But you just provided an example where somebody that doesn't have um, exposure to those things or have access to them is still able to progressively overload inside of the comfort of their own home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and like, if I just gave you a, like one one size weight your whole lifting career, you you could actually make that work by just making it harder and harder and harder. You'd use different leverages. You'd use more perfect form. You'd do it more explosively. You'd hold it for longer. You'd do an isometric. You'd do a slow negative. You'd do something making the way you're lifting it way way harder. And you'd still get results. And so you don't necessarily have to have the full weight stack cable machine where you just, you know, incrementally uh, micro load it and have all this equipment and all this stuff. You can pretty much make it work with nothing as long as you're just constantly trying to get progressive overload by making it harder, either doing it with more strict form or, or more perfect form or just uh, hard, you know, leverages uh, or some type of technique. You're just trying to make it harder. And the goal is to just always make it as hard as possible to communicate to your body that it needs to be stronger in order to accomplish what you're trying to make it do. For sure. Yeah. And I think we also have to acknowledge that there's this dead space in the middle where people find themselves in a no man's land between they're not necessarily moving the needle for performance or hypertrophy or some of these higher focused uh, goals, but they're also doing more than they need to do to maintain what they have, right? So this a good example of this is somebody that's spending 90 minutes in the gym, but is prioritizing lower intensity movements, uh, is prioritizing isolation exercises, is taking longer rest than they need to because they're spending time on their phone or talking with other people. And it's like, their goal in their mind may be, oh, I'm focusing on hypertrophy right now. I want to build muscle. But in reality, they could get the same effect that they're receiving in 90 minutes in probably less than 30 if they were to just get really focused, work on the right levers and not get so um, romanticized to some degree or another on this higher end goal without the work needed or the volume and intensity needed to actually attain that. So this minimum effective dose is a really important message for people to hear because you can... If, if you get over the, the ego of it, right, and, and this, this facade of believing that you have to achieve these like higher end uh, or set these higher end expectations for yourself, you can actually reduce your time spent in the gym. You can reduce the amount of energy that your exercising is taking out of you and ultimately just better contribute to your overall life. Definitely, definitely. And, and, and like, okay, uh, so... I want what people should mostly do is whatever exercise they enjoy and whatever is fun and whatever is rewarding, whatever motivates them, whatever they like. You can always on the back end of that, you can um, make it hard enough so that you're getting the benefits, the cardiovascular or the hypertrophy benefits that you want out of it. So the primary is like enjoying it, wanting to do it. You're going to be compliant. You're going to have consistency then. And so so I, I like honestly, I love CrossFit. It's super motivational. The community is amazeballs. People really love it. Um, and it's got a slight stimulus to fatigue problem. You know what I mean? Like, For sure. You could do an hour CrossFit class, 
and you're getting a lot of endurance and you're burning a lot of calories, but it might not be exactly as focused enough to really drive you forward in the few directions you want to go. You know what I'm saying? And so that's, that's kind of why I like the, the minimalism because you, you know, if you're not going to spend very much time, you're going to be like hyper-focused on the one thing you're trying to accomplish. And, and so, uh, but having said that, you know, I do stuff that's huge, huge time consumption. That's not that focused. Like I'll play ultimate Frisbee for hours just cause I love it. Right. I'm like addicted to it and it's fun. And, and so, and, and I think CrossFit can be the same way. And so if people enjoy that, that's awesome. Like it's spectacular. Uh, but it's also possible to, uh, you know, work really hard and expend a lot, get a, accumulate a lot of fatigue for not uh, exactly the kind of stimulus you want. If you're looking for just pure strength or hypertrophy or something like that. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, we, we've evolved as a gym a lot over the years and now I, we take a very much, very much a, a prescriptive model with our members, you know, and, and if that includes, somebody is a cyclist and they, they want to optimize for becoming a better cyclist because that's what they enjoy. Well, then guess what? Like we're going to focus on the things to make sure their, you know, uh, knees, hips, hip and back are healthy and that they're maintaining their core muscles and these kind of antagonists that are going to help facilitate longevity in that sport. So I think it's important, you know, as you mentioned, to get really focused on each individual for what it's worth and to just help them optimize for the life that they want. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Hey, well, Ted, this was a blast. And um, I know that we're going to have a lot of people that take a ton out of this. Uh, So tell everyone where they can learn more about you. Got it. Yeah, right. Well, I'm still, you know, just doing primary care here in Seattle. My uh, practice is super over full. So I'm close to new patients. So I can't really work with anyone directly. Um, I'm only licensed, you know, in Washington state. And I'm just seeing patients in person with a totally full practice. So I'm not much help like um, medically for anyone, Um, but uh, you could check out my book. It's called The PE Diet and you can uh, buy it at thepediet.com or tednam.com or just anywhere you can find books, Amazon or whatever, Um, or just Google it or something. Um, I'm on all the socials at Ted Naiman on Twitter and Instagram and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I think probably the, the most useful thing I've come up with is the book. And so that's probably the most helpful thing I've got. Um, I do have a YouTube channel that's horrible and way too small. And I haven't made a video for so long that I think it's, it's, it's tragic. I just don't have time to like do a lot of editing and stuff. As you probably have um, figured out, man, it's so hard editing all this stuff like takes forever. It is. And honestly, I, um, I took the advice to get a team together immediately. You know, I, I knew getting into this with, with still running the facility and having my hands in, in some other businesses and, and whatnot, that to being able to, to edit all of this content myself was not going to be feasible. So luckily I have some amazing people on my team that are helping me out. Oh, you're smart, man. See, you're way smarter than me. This is, this is why you're good at this <laughs> business stuff. And I'm still just like working like minimum wage. Get out of here, it said. Well, hey, uh, I appreciate everything that that you do um, and all of the work that you've done because I think that you're you're making a difference in the space, and I think that you're helping provide clarity in the nutrition sciences, which can be a space that can definitely bring some confusion to it. So, um, again, I appreciate your work, and thank you for hopping on. 
Oh, thank you for having me, man. And I went and just checked out your gym online and just tons of five-star reviews. Looks really cool. Um, sounds like you are trying to meet people where they're at. So keep up the good work. I mean, I've often said my whole primary care doctor job, I could totally be replaced tomorrow by just like a therapist and a personal trainer. <laughs> so like, you know, this is, you're doing uh, half my job for me already. And I appreciate it. Hey, I, I really do appreciate that. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.